Please go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke. And that to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 and that to verse 15. Hear now God's holy word. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many exhortations he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we gather under the preaching of your word, we ask that you would give to us a deeper sense of our need in Jesus. Reveal more of who he is to us and by your Holy Spirit, give us the grace to trust him more and to love him more this day. Cause faith to rise and cause our eyes to see the beauty of our Savior and His glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been working through Luke chapter 3 and the ministry of John the Baptist, it made me think back to the time when I was able to visit, in all probability, the site where John was baptizing in the Jordan River. Prior to going, I had imagined that it would be this beautiful scenic river flowing with fresh spring water, only to find that it looked more like a swamp with tall weeds and brush along its banks. And the water was rather uninviting as it was murky and brown and green. Well, Pastor Eric and Pastor Minjay went in and immersed themselves in that holy brown water and even baptized each other in excitement. Well, I guess if it was good for my Lord, then it ought to be good for me, is what I had hoped to think. But I lacked faith, and I decided not to enter, afraid that I would catch some kind of pestilence and disease. But what all of us noticed there at the river was the presence of soldiers. On the one side of the Jordan River were two Israeli soldiers, and on the other side, two Jordanian soldiers. And as the river in that area, it divides the two nations. And it's not that the two are at war with one another, but they're also not friendly. There is a measure of hostility that exists between the both of them. And we asked the Israeli soldiers if they ever talked to the Jordanian soldiers, and they said never. But they were so close. They were merely yards away from each other. The river is probably about 15 to 20 feet at most wide. Now you can say that something similar was going on 
a little over 2,000 years ago in that very same location in the Jordan River. And that it was a place of hostility. There were groups of people there who were not fond of each other. They weren't at war, but definitely not friends. Tax collectors had come to the river. They were lying cheats who collected more than what was required. Soldiers had come as well, and they abused their authority to intimidate and to take from the people. But that place of hostility had turned into a place of repentance. When John the Baptist came preaching the word of God, there was a spiritual awakening by that river. Many there repented of their sins, and for those who had experienced that inward conviction, now wanted to know how to go about living that outward change. And having been baptized, they they asked John, what shall we do? What do we do? And John tells them. And so there was this spiritual revival at the Jordan River. Now the people seeing all of this happen there wondered as to who John was. Who is this baptizer? Even asking if he was their expected Savior and Messiah. Well, in these last several weeks, we've been looking at the ministry and the preaching of John the Baptist. He wasn't the Christ, but the one who would precede him. He was God's last prophet who would go before the Lord to prepare his way and to make them ready. And when the people asked if he was the one whom they had been waiting for, notice the response in which John gave. And this is where we pick back up in the story here in Luke chapter 3. Look with me in verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John says that there is another baptizer. A baptizer whom he precedes, but more importantly, who is far greater. A baptizer whose sandals he is unworthy to untie. A task that was degrading and fit for really lowly servants. And so John, he responds here, no, I'm not the one. I'm not the Christ. Well, Luke, in full agreement with John, wants to make sure as he writes his gospel that we understand that. And so he does that by summarizing John's ministry here and really bringing it to a close. And in the rest of Luke's gospel, we'll hear about John, but we won't see John. He all but disappears from the scene. Luke makes a transition here from the ministry of John the Baptist to the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And and it's it's quite sobering. Look with me in verse 18. So with many exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. What we immediately realize is that Luke provides us with an odd order of events. He inserts John's imprisonment right in between his public ministry here in Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist was baptizing many people in the Jordan River, which then he baptized Jesus, in which the heavens opened. But in the middle of it all, Luke tells us that John preached good news and was in prison. I mean, it's obvious that 
that Luke isn't following a chronological order here. How could John baptize the Lord if he was in prison? Well, what do we have here? Again, Luke, he wants to bring John's ministry to a close. To provide a break from the ministry of John to the ministry of Jesus. In order to shift our focus from the forerunner and that to the king. But before John disappears, as it were, from the scene, we need to appreciate that John, at the height of his popularity, when he was the most successful preacher in all of Israel, as countless people flocked to him by the River Jordan, asking him to be their savior, he chose to deflect all of it. He simply pointed people to Christ. Exalting Christ was the only thing that mattered to him. You see, John teaches us what Christianity should look like in all of us. That we live not for ourselves, but for the name and the glory of Christ. No matter what the consequences. Preaching good news to the people meant preaching the word of truth to men even like Herod. Reproving him of his unrighteousness. Rebuking him for his wickedness. And Herod, he knew it. Herod knew deep down the evil for which he was doing. And so he had to get rid of the only voice of conscience that had been bothering him. So Luke tells us that Herod had John locked up in prison. Well, Matthew chapter 14 recounts for us that on Herod's birthday, the daughter of his mistress, Herodias, danced before him and his guests. And that anything she requested from Herod would be granted. And of all the things to ask for, she she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. It was her mother Herodias who helped make the suggestion, and we can see why. Matthew 14.9 says that the king was sorry, that the king was sorry, but due to his sinful obligation, he had to get it done. And you see, we learned even from last Lord's Day, you can be sorry, but nowhere close to being repentant. They removed John from his prison cell. They had him stand before his executioner. And with one devastating blow, the prophet was decapitated. The promised son of Zechariah and Elizabeth was killed. You see, we learn that holiness is costly. There is a price for righteousness in which the world demands payment. Reminds us as Christians that friendship with the world is enmity with God so also is friendship with God enmity with the world. Yet oftentimes we, we get so enamored with the world and we get pulled in and we compromise. And by trying to save our lives in the world, we ultimately lose it. You know, any outside person would, would have looked at John's life as one of the most tragic endings a person could experience. I mean, what a horrible death. What a shameful existence. That would be the consensus from the world. And here's the thing. That would be true if Luke chapter 3 were to end right here. John's life is sad and meaningless. If this is all there is to the story. It's a rather very pathetic life. But if you simply look down to the gospel of Luke. There are 20 more chapters to go. It's because Luke's objective is to not tell us about John, but about Jesus. 
to tell us about the work and ministry of the Son of God. What He has done. What He has accomplished. What He is doing right now. What He will do in the future. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you see, that changes everything for John. So that in the moment, that in the moment in which John died, he, he was brought to the very presence of his God and his Savior and to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter into the joy of your master. We have seen much of the Baptist, but now Luke wants to present to us the greater baptizer in Jesus. And so for the rest of our time together, there are two things about the ministry of Jesus that I believe Luke wants us to see here in chapter 3. And number one is this, the baptism in which Jesus gives. The baptism in which Jesus gives. And number two, the baptism in which Jesus receives. You'll see it there fairly easily in chapter 3. Luke talks about the baptism of Christ. And it's there in verses 16 and 17. And then the baptism he receives in verses 21 and 22. Well, we begin with the baptism he gives. We find that there is another baptism for sinners. One that eternally outweighs the other. Whereas John baptized with water, Jesus Christ baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Well, what's the difference? Well, John could call people to repentance. And he could wash them in the water. But the one thing that he couldn't do was change them from the inside out. He could only go so far. He was able to preach the good news faithfully to the listening ear, but he couldn't make them receive it, receive it into their hearts. There was a glaring limitation. He was able to immerse sinners in the river, but he couldn't cleanse their souls. And so what was needed was a baptism that went far beyond anything that the prophet could do. There needed to be a greater baptizer, a more powerful baptizer, a most holy and divine baptizer who is mightier than I, says John. And while John performed what can be described as the outward symbol, it only mattered as much as Jesus had brought about the inward transformation. How then does Jesus bring about this change? By the Holy Spirit. By the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Notice this baptism of the Spirit is likened to a fire. It's not that there are two different kinds of baptisms, one of the Holy Spirit and one of fire, but one baptism. One baptism that Jesus gives. One baptism of the Holy Spirit who is described as an all-consuming fire. And that to purify. And that to cleanse. This is what this baptism does. It purifies and cleanses. Not by immersing the sinner into water, but by immersing the sinner into the Holy Spirit. Rather, the Holy Spirit in the heart of the sinner. Paul, he makes reference to this baptism in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. He said, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. 
he speaks about the Spirit's initial work of bringing us into the body of Christ in salvation. And he calls it a baptism. And you see, that's just the beginning of what takes place for those who are baptized by the Holy Spirit. But it's not all that the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit first, He regenerates us that we might be born again, that we might be brought to new life. A Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, he came to Jesus in the night without anyone knowing, seeking the salvation in which he lacked. And and Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And in confusion, Nicodemus, he, he answered back, well, how can a man be born when he's old? How is anyone able to go back into their mother's womb to be born a second time? It, it doesn't make sense. And then Jesus said this to him, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, what was Jesus speaking of? A spiritual change, a new birth, which only the Spirit could do. But the Spirit not only regenerates us, but He indwells and comes to live inside of us. He makes His home within us, which is why our bodies are called, 1 Corinthians 3.16, a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so it matters then what we do with our lives, both body and soul. Paul warns us not to destroy God's temple, lest God destroy us. But having been baptized by the Holy Spirit, there is an ongoing purifying work that takes place in our lives. The Spirit sanctifies us. And that by putting to death that which is harmful to us and bringing about practical holiness in our lives. He changes us and He transforms us closer into the likeness of Him who baptized us. Being being baptized by the Holy Spirit, He also adopts us, bringing us into the family of God so that we might be called sons and daughters of God. The Spirit also seals us to assure us that we are His and that our sins have been forgiven. Ephesians 1.13 says that you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit in which the Holy Spirit becomes the down payment to guarantee that what God has promised, He will bring about. Ephesians 4.30 says, for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit also prays for us. When we know not what to pray, the Spirit, Romans 8.26, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He fills us, enabling us to walk faithfully in Him. He fills us, enabling us to serve Him. And we can go on and on and on. But this is the baptism in which Jesus gives in which He gives to us a a baptism of the Holy Spirit, a baptism to cleanse us from the inside out, through and through. This is an eternal, internal work, an internal work of salvation that leads to eternal life. A person can do all the external things, like go to church, attend prayer meetings, and do charitable work, even be baptized in water. But apart from the Holy Spirit, a person remains in their sins and truly unchanged. Now, what we need to understand is this. This baptism in which Jesus gives, which is of the Holy Spirit and of fire, not only does a cleansing and purifying work, but a consuming and a destroying work. 
You see, that which is put into the fire is either purified or destroyed. And so the Holy Spirit cleanses the believer on the one hand and yet consumes the unbeliever on the other. The baptism Jesus gives, he gives to all. Which is to say that the baptizer is both a savior and a judge. To save those who repent of their sins and come to him in faith and to judge those who resist. And so notice that John here in Luke 3, he goes on to describe this great and mighty baptizer in verse 17. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This baptizer, says John, is also a farmer who will gather all people, believers and unbelievers, holy and unholy, converted and unconverted. He will gather all, even those mingled within the congregation who often sit side by side. The church, like John the Baptist, can only go so far. At the River Jordan, John wasn't able to distinguish truly between the sincere and the insincere. He wasn't able to change their hearts nor read them. Much the same, the church cannot separate the true from the untrue with perfection. The wheat and the chaff will continue together, but there will be a day of separation, a day of dividing, when the unerring judgment of Christ will step onto the threshing floor and take the winnowing fork in his hand and toss the wheat and the chaff into the air where the wind will divide the two. He is the mighty baptizer. He is the discerning farmer. And he suffers no lack of judgment, but knows the heart of every person and what is inside. The righteous will be gathered into his barn and the wicked will be thrown into the fire, into the unquenchable flame. This is the baptism Jesus gives. A baptism that saves the one. A baptism that destroys the other. Now there's something that we need to see here, not in the first part of Luke's record, but in the second. You know that Luke wrote two books, Luke and Acts, part one and part two. And it records for us in part two, the first fulfillment of John's promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and a fire in Acts chapter two. And you can turn there if you like. But there in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the followers of Jesus were all gathered together in one place, all 120 of them. And suddenly from heaven came a mighty rushing wind. And Luke tells us that divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested upon each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit in whom Jesus had promised to give in the manifestation of fire. But you see, that fire shouldn't have rested upon them. That fire should have consumed and destroyed each and every one of them. The Holy Spirit fire that came down from heaven should have burned those that had gathered in that house 
in the very same manner in which fire came down from heaven from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering upon the altar as Aaron lifted up his hands. The fire should have incinerated them. But it didn't. It came, and it says there in Acts 2, this fire came and rested upon each of them. You see, in the baptism in which Jesus gives, He knows what is in all of our hearts. Psalm 131 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who, who could stand? You see, this baptizer is unerring in his judgment. His eyes are like a flame of fire, which is to say that all, every single one of us, we deserve to be destroyed. All the chaff, we we included, should be thrown into the flame. That fire should have consumed them. In the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what makes the farmer gather the wheat into his barn? We need to ask that question, beloved. Why does his winnowing fork not deem us as chaff? Is there something that we did over against everyone else that makes us weep? You see, while there is a baptism in which Jesus gives, we need to know that there is a baptism that he receives. Let's go back to Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, There at the Jordan River, we find that Jesus was baptized. But do you notice in Luke chapter 3 how he says it so casually, like a passing phrase? He doesn't even tell us who baptized Jesus, though we know by the other gospel accounts that it was John. Luke doesn't really give us a lot of details in that because he wants us to focus in on one thing. Listen to how it reads again. Just listen to it again. When all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. What is Luke drawing our attention to? That Jesus was baptized like everyone else. In other words, he was baptized as if he was a sinner. If there was anyone who didn't need to be baptized, it was Jesus. John was there at the river preaching a message, if you remember, a message of repentance. Calling upon the people to repent of their sins. Jesus should have been nowhere near the vicinity of that river, for he had no sins to repent. He was the holy and sinless Son of God. He was undefiled, untouched, by any kind of corruption. Yet he was there, asking John to baptize him like the sinners who had been baptized before him. Well, why? So that he might identify with sinners. That he might stand in the place of sinners. To bring to fulfillment what Isaiah had prophesied hundreds of years earlier. And that he would be numbered with the transgressors. 
But this baptism wouldn't be the only baptism Jesus would undergo. This baptism would point to the real baptism he would receive. Not one of water, but of blood. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus said this to his disciples. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. You see, the reason why that fire didn't consume those who are gathered together in that house, the reason why that fire doesn't consume you and me, Christian, is because Christ baptized Himself in that very fire. The great baptizer taking upon our sins and standing in our place underwent the fires of God's judgment. He was plunged into the flood of God's wrath. And this is why we find him here by the Jordan River at the very beginning of his ministry to reveal to us why he has come and what he has come to do. So that the baptism of the Holy Spirit he gives wouldn't consume us, but change us. That it would be a gracious, life-transforming baptism that makes us new from the inside out. A baptism not to destroy us, but to create in me and in you an altogether new heart. And he does all this by being overwhelmed by the fiery judgment of God upon the cross. There he bore my sins in his body on the tree and he sends his Holy Spirit to transform me. John said this baptizer is mightier than me. Beloved, there's no argument. It's because he died for me. Non-Christian, don't refuse. Don't refuse the salvation that is offered to you in this baptizer. Don't delay. Don't delay. The time to get right with God is right now. Come to Him to find refuge and safety from your sins. Cast yourself upon Him who was baptized in the flames of God's judgment. Run to the Savior, lest you meet Him as your judge. Repent and turn to the one who died and rose again from the dead. Non-Christian, don't turn a deaf ear to the call to be saved. Trust in Him. And would the baptism He gives not consume you, but save you. Now, there are three details here in Luke that I want us to close with here. And the first is that not only was Jesus being baptized, but He was praying. We see that in verse 21. One of the things in which Luke often makes note of is Jesus' pattern of prayer. He tells us how Jesus would withdraw to desolate places to pray like in Luke 5.16. Luke 6.12 says that He went off to the mountain to pray and He spent the whole night in prayer to God. Well, why did Jesus so often pray? It's not that He... He needed to ask God to forgive him of his sins. What we find here is a person who likes to talk to his heavenly father. He loves to commune with him. It's a reflection of Jesus' love for his father who is in heaven. And Jesus is praying because having been baptized, 
He has publicly entered into the ministry for which he came. Look at chapter 3, verse 23. It tells us that when he began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age. He had come to do his father's will. The anguish upon his soul would grow greater and become more intense as he drew closer to the baptism he would receive upon the cross. And so he needed to trust upon his father and he needed to look to him for faith. And this is why he prayed, looking to his father in heaven. And you see, the question we ought to ask ourselves then is this. How is it that we can think that we can live our Christian lives apart from any dependency upon our Father? It's impossible. There's no such thing. It's one of the greatest lies to believe that we can live apart from any communion with God. If prayer is absent, then what is it about our lives that is Christian? God has given to us this means of grace. Beloved, you know, you can easily see this illustration. If we don't eat, we will starve. If we don't breathe, we will die. Just as there are physical means of life, so there are spiritual means of grace. And prayer is one of them. And here's what the Lord Jesus was doing. Now, as he was baptized and was praying to the Father, looking forward to the baptism with which he would receive, notice, secondly, that the Father responded. Verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son with you, I am well pleased. As the son was praying to the father, the heavens opened and the father spoke to his son. It was one of the greatest displays of affection from the father to his son Jesus as the Holy Spirit descended upon him. And God, by his grace, allows us to hear and allows us to see the perfect love that exists within the Holy Trinity. Here is the Son lifting up a prayer to the Father. The Spirit descending down on the Son. The Father speaking from heaven to the Son. And what we come to find here is that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are not just three manifestations of a God who is only one. They are not three modes of being of one God. They are three persons in the one true God. There is one God who eternally exists in three persons in which those three persons fellowship and communicate with one another. And we are brought in to see a glimpse of that holy participation within the Godhead. This is absolutely amazing. To see that everything that God does, He does within the Trinity. But notice what God the Father says to God the Son. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. What did the Son need to hear? Those very words from His Father. 
that as he identified himself with sinners to be baptized with a baptism only he could receive, he needed to hear the assurance of love from his father. And you see, all throughout Scripture, we've been able to hear echoes of this love. Like in Psalm chapter 2, Pastor Eric read it in God's declaration to Israel's King and Messiah. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or in Genesis 22, when God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, and he said it in these words there in Genesis 22, God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. And you'll know that in that story, as Abraham lifted the blade, that God stayed his hand and provided for him a lamb. A lamb who would ultimately be revealed to be God's son. He was God's son. His only son, Jesus, whom he loved. Yet there was no one to stop the Father's hand. And here at the Jordan River, God was declaring on earth what had been always true in heaven. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You know, as John spoke of Jesus here in Luke chapter 3, he knew something of the worthiness of Christ and the holiness of his baptism. He says that here. But only the Father could declare Jesus to be the one and only eternal Son of His love. And so as the Son prayed, and as the Father spoke, lastly, the Spirit descended upon the Son in the form of a dove. You know, out of all creatures, the Spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove. It says, if you have an ESV, in bodily form. Now, why a dove? Now, there are a lot of suggestions. Doves are seen as harmless and innocent. Jesus told his disciples that they must be as harmless as doves. Remember that? Or that doves were birds of sacrifice. But remember in Genesis chapter 8, after God had destroyed the world with a flood of water, remember who remained? It was Noah. It was Noah and his family. When humanity was ruined at the fall, God gave a promise of a Savior in Genesis 3.15. And the parents of Noah believed Noah to be that Savior, which is why they gave him that name. His name means rest. That he would bring rest to the people of God, for the people of God, from the curse. They thought it was going to be Noah. But it wasn't Noah. There would come another who would ultimately come and give that rest by going into the flood of God's wrath. And to come out of it on dry ground. And how did Noah know that the judgment of God has ceased? Remember the story? By sending out a dove that flew out from the ark to find a place to set its foot. And when the dove didn't return, what did Noah know? That God was doing something new. 
And so here then was Jesus standing in our place, going into the waters of judgment, going into the waters to undergo a baptism of blood upon the cross so that the baptism he gives wouldn't consume us, but make us new. Let's pray together. Gracious Redeemer and Savior, how great of a salvation we have in Jesus, who plunged himself into the darkness and into the flood to rescue us from our sins and from fiery wrath, that your Holy Spirit wouldn't consume us, but come to dwell inside of us. And so would we give you perpetual praise? Would we live our lives in faithful obedience and thanksgiving? We confess that our hearts are often in a state of coldness and indifference. We neglect your means of grace. We are inclined to commune with the things of this world rather than the living God. Forgive us for being loveless. And we ask that you would give us the grace to love and trust you more. Would we know that we have been buried with Jesus by a baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in the newness of life. Thank you, Holy God, that all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in perfect communion and perfect participation, has brought about our salvation. To you be all the praise and glory, one God in Trinity, and in Trinity, unity. Amen.